It is good to be here. It is good to see every one of you here. I am excited for today. And uh, I am glad that, uh, so we didn't expect, anticipate for Pastor Phil to be in the building this morning because he's actually in like two seconds about to leave to go minister at another church. If you guys remember, Pastor Brian, we had come to minister to us and, and uh, Pastor Phil's going to go and minister to that church. And so when he walked through the doors this morning, my heart was elated. And so I'm so glad that you're here. Uh, but before, before he dips, can we just pray for him real quick? Heavenly Father, we just thank you for our pastor. I pray you bless him mightily. The word that you've given him is already anointed. Bless those that are going to receive it in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Praise God. Praise God. Praise God. Well, we are in the middle of a series called Beautiful Community. And really, it's, it's talking about the idea of like, what is this community of Christians supposed to really be like? Um, and I think for many of us, uh, you probably had some sort of uh, church tradition. Uh, some of you may have even grown up in church, or maybe you got saved when you were a teenager. Maybe you got saved when you were a young adult, and, and now you're you know, in your 60s or maybe your 70s, and, you, and you've had experience of, of various church traditions, and you've been able to kind of take all of those and interpret what this Christian community is supposed to look like, um, and some of your experience have maybe not lined up to your expectations. And, and sometimes what we do is we force our own interpretation on what this community is supposed to look like, our own ideas. And so we're really looking at the scripture and says, well, wait a minute, what does the Bible say? What does Jesus say that we are supposed to be? Who are we as a community of believers supposed to be? And so we are doing this, uh, this series called The Beautiful Community. Um, we're broken, but we're beautiful in Christ. And today, um, I have been assigned to talk about encouragement. And so the title of my message is Encourage, This Is Us. Encourage, This Is Us. Amen. So I'm excited. Um, one of the things that we love to do as a family is watch movies. There are certain movies that we watch. And one of our favorite movies of all time is Home Alone. How many of you guys watch Home Alone? Everybody seen Home Alone? Right. We love it. We love Home Alone. And I think really anybody, in fact, you know, when you start getting into like your preteen years, you start asking like, when can I be Home Alone? The idea of having like the apartment or the house to yourself and being able to watch anything you want or, you know, sneak some snacks out of the cupboard or whatever the situation might be, this idea that, you know, being Home Alone is the greatest thing ever. And, and that's basically what the, this movie is, is, is this uh, kid named Kevin accidentally gets stuck home alone as his family goes on a trip and leaves him behind by accident. And he wakes up and he has the whole house to himself. And it's the greatest experience ever up until it's not, right? And if you remember the movie, like he, he's going, he's getting his groceries, he runs into a couple of bad guys. But there's this one part of the movie that I remember that uh, as he's walking by he, uh, from the outside, he's watching another family through a window sort of eating and having family time together. And you can tell he misses that. He feels like he's outside of that and he wants to be in that family. And, and for many people, what it is is sometimes we, we look at what it is to be a Christian and we're standing on the outside and we have not really came in. Uh, and the reality is, is that God did not just call us out of something, out of this world or out of darkness, but he called us into something, into light, but into a family, into a community. And, and so you don't have to stand on the outside looking in. You are invited to come in. And, and, and what this does, this text that we're about to read is give us insight to what this looks like. What does it look like to be a part of this family? If you were to stand outside almost like Kevin did in, in, in this movie and, and look through the window of the family of God, what does that look like? If I were to ask you that, some of you might have all sorts of descriptions and opinions, but the question is, well, what is it supposed to look like? And the text today really helps us discover that. And so where you'll find the assignment is in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 25. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 25. And it says this, Therefore, brothers, since we have, confide, uh, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, since we have confidence, say confidence, 
yeah, uh, to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain that is his body. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, when it says curtain, it's talking about when you were in the temple uh, back in the day in the Old Testament, in order to get in the presence of God, you had to go under this curtain. But the Bible says that when Jesus Christ was crucified, that curtain that was hanging in the temple was ripped from the top to the bottom. So that's what it means, that his body. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near, say draw near, to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold uh, unswaveringly to the hope we profess for he who is promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur, say spur, spur one another on to love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in habit of doing, but let us encourage there it is say encourage encourage one another and all the more you see the day approaching all the more do this even more as you see the day approaching let's just pray heavenly father i thank you I thank you, God, that you are shaping us, that you are forming us, God, that you are chiseling us, God, uh, and breaking us, Lord, uh, putting us together into this community uh, that is beautiful, God, that will be displayed for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen Amen. and amen. Um, Over the last couple weeks, we've really been looking at what it means to be a particular kind of Christian community. See, because when you become a Christian, God teaches us how to be sort of a new kind of humanity, right? You're already human, but, but, but now he's showing you how to be a new kind of human. And, and basically what he's showing us is that we were also created for community, created for community, which frankly is totally countercultural to the world we live in today. Our world often evaluates us on the basis of what we've achieved for ourselves as us as individuals, what we've accomplished for ourselves, what we make our own, how we care for ourselves. But actually, write this down, the highest expression of humanity isn't so much what any of us achieves on our own, but it's the life we live together. The highest expression of humanity isn't so much what any of us achieves on our own, but the life we live together, right? And and, and so there's three things that we learn about community in this passage that I just want to bring up this morning. Uh, And I think that uh, this is going to be an incredible way to go forward uh, in this series as we prepare for the sermons and the messages that are to come. And basically, it's this. uh, I want to just talk about the, the why we need it, the need for it, how we practice it. And, and then the power to do it. All right, is that okay? So why we need this, you know, how we practice it, you know, and, and the power to do it. And, and, and basically what it is is this, is that when we talk about encouragement, that word encourage, really what it's saying is it, 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 it's saying, listen, to bring courage to somebody. That, that, we, are, that we are bringing you courage. We're stirring up your courage, courage. And and we need courage simply to make it in this world. We live in a modern society where there's this tremendous amount of security, right? There's a tremendous amount of comfort in our reality here in the West, right? And you have all kinds of access to healthcare. There's a new iPhone every single year, right? And, and, and there's a certain society of comfort that we belong to. And we almost feel a certain sense of entitlement to the comfort that we experience. Like when that comfort taken from us, all of a sudden we say, it's not fair, this isn't right, I have my rights, whatever, right? That, that there's a certain ex- entitlement that we have uh, for, uh, for uh, comfort. And in fact, we, what we could say is that we, are, we might be one of the least prepared generations for discomfort, for discomfort. Because, but one of the realities of comfort is this, is that comfort has the effect of deadening our senses. 
right, of, of lulling us to sleep. And when you are asleep, you, you often are not obvious of the dangers and the risks that are around you particularly in a world where we are always being judged for our performance and our achievement, for what we are able to do, and that's where our worth comes from, right? And this is a reminder that we need courage to live in this world because it's far more dangerous than our comfort would like us to suggest, and, it's fa- and there's far more life that needs to be lived than our personal achievement wants to suggest, Okay, it's far more dangerous than our comfort wants to suggest, but there's far more life to be lived than our personal achievement wants to suggest. And this morning, I want us to really consider those three things, the practice, the, the, the need for it, the practice of it, and the power to do it. All right. So here we go. Number one, our need for it, our need for it. I want you to notice how irreplaceable this type of community is. How irreplaceable this type of community that we need is. In verse 25, it says, let's not give up meeting together, right? That, that word meeting is episynagogue. It's a Greek word, episynagogue. And, and basically, it's where we get the word congregation from. Now, there's a difference between an aggregation and a congregation, Right? An aggregation is just a collection of individuals who come together to listen to a speaker or, or be at an event. But a congregation is very different. A, 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 an, aggravation, a, a, an aggregation is like a bag of marbles, right? With all the marbles in this bag kind of slipping and sliding and, and hitting against each other. Whereas a congregation is like a cluster of grapes in which all the grapes are organically related to each other. That's the difference. See, a congregation is a community in which all aspects of the members' lives touch. We don't just come together to hear a speaker or have an experience, but we eat together, we pray together, we learn together, we love together, we confess our sins to each other. The key to understanding what Christian community is, is that little word, and it's one word, but, but in Greek, but in, but in English it comes out as two, and so you hear this term ever, you know, throughout all the Bible, one another, one another right? Love one another. Lift up one another, right? One another. And we hear it here. Let us spur one another. Let us encourage one another. This word means a mutuality, right? So when you come to church, according to the New Testament, when you come to church, it's, it's not just a place that you go And it's not just only a place that you get taught. It's not only a place that you get counseled. It's not only a place that you get shepherded. It is all of those things. But according to the New Testament, when you're doing those things, you're also confessing to sins to one another. We should be admonishing one another. We should be uh, carrying each other's burdens and, and weeping with it's mutual, you see. And what's important there is, is, is when it says, you know, don't forsake uh, the meeting of yourselves together. Uh, in other words, don't forsake coming to church. It does mean that. It does mean don't forsake coming here. But it doesn't only mean that. It doesn't only mean don't, don't you know, uh, like it's not telling you, hey, listen, for those of you who have stopped coming on a Sunday morning, come back. It is saying that, but it's not only saying that. It's not just talking about that you're here but it's talking about what you do when you're here. It's not just talking about that you come to things like meetups and, and, and connect groups and, 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 all, of those, and all those other uh, spaces that we give for community. It's not just that you do those things, but what you do when you do those things, right? That's what's important. Are you spurring one another up to love and good works? Are you encouraging one another? And we'll break those down in just a minute. But I want to get those questions sort of stirring in your mind, right? Stirring in all of us. You know, are you open up about your hurts and your problems and your needs? Do you hold each other accountable? Do you really get in? Or are you attending you're on the property, but but like like Kevin and Home Alone, you're you're outside of the window looking in. Looking in. Have you really entered in to the community that you profess and proclaim that you want? That you say, oh, I really wish I had. 
Are you entering into that? Or are we just sort of like, you know what? I do want that, but I'm not really, you know. Right? How are we doing that? That's what verse 24 and 25 say that we, that we should not mess out on. Don't do that. Don't forsake that. At the end of the passage, you, you heard it say that you should do this all the more as you see the day approaching. The day approaching. What does that mean? As like the end of the day, the next day? What does it mean? Well, the day in biblical terms is what Christians call the final judgment. At a time where everything is laid bare, when all of our lives are exposed, when it's all before God to examine and to judge. Now, if that doesn't make you a little nervous, it should. Right? It should. It should make us a little nervous because what that does is it makes our heart be like, okay, God, am I going to stand before the Heavenly Father in myself and in my own works and in my own deeds? And if you are, that should scare you. That shouldn't make you nervous. That should terrify you. Yeah. Or are you going to stand before the Lord covered under the blood of Jesus Christ wow. because of the power of the blood? And there's a couple of things to note here. First of all, the gospel requires it. And second, our conscience confirms it. When I talk about this final judgment, the gospel requires it, but our consciousness c- confirms it. See, if there is a God who is big enough to be God, a God who is in fact not just something we invented on our own, right? No, oh, oh man invented God so we can cope. No, no, if it's not that, if there is a God who, who is big enough to be God, then he has to have the ability to act in ways that you and I fully don't understand, right? In fact, that God has to be able to judge according to standards that you and I may not even have chosen or preferred on our own. See, if your view of God is a cosmic vending machine, so, you know, I go up to him and I ask him what I want and he gives me what I want when I ask according to my demands and my preferences, if that's the case, then how can I trust that God will be just? How can I trust that God will do the right thing? Particularly if what I want comes at the expense of someone else, right? See, but if God is a God who is beyond human invention, if he is beyond our own notions and our own creation of what God should be, beyond our own sense of right and wrong, who doesn't just do what we ask him to? If, if there is that God, if, if, then that means he is big enough to trust. Then that means he's a God that's big enough to judge and be the Lord over our lives. Yes, yes, yes. So the gospel requires it. But also our conscious confirms it, right? Our consciousness. Each one of us knows the fear of being exposed. Each one of us knows the fear of what it means to be vulnerable, right? To do something and to have someone come in and examine it and possibly reject you on the base of that examination, right? We're going to examine actions or we're going to examine heart motives or we're going to examine your work. We're going to see boss comes in and let's see how you did. And they're examining and there's a possibility that I'm going to be rejected from. We, we know what that is like, right? Where the teacher's coming and examining your assignments and examining your homework. We know what that is like to feel like, oh man, is this good enough or did I do it? The coach comes and they're examining your performance and maybe other people are watching you to, to see how well you do so you can get into a university or whatever the situation is. We know what that feels is like to uh, the fear of being exposed we want to put on our best in front of somebody because if we were really exposed and to have someone examine that that terrifies us not because of the examination but because of the rejection because of the rejection you see And so we all live in this moment by moment basis, this fear of being judged and condemned where there's a court, uh, uh, where where there's this uh, before the court of human approval, right? Whether it's in our relationships, at work, or even in our own hearts. Everything's laid bare. In Genesis chapter three, for instance, we, we see Adam and Eve. And here Adam and Eve are in the garden. They live in harmony with one another, with God and with themselves. And there's no alienation. There's no separation. They are not alone. They are not isolated, right? There's no discord. And then what happens is the fall. And what happens there is a new human emotion has now entered the garden. When they fall, a new human emotion has now entered the world and it's called fear. Fear. 
the fear of being exposed, the fear of being evaluated and coming up short and being judged. That's the fear that drives us on how we live and how we conduct our world. You know, I want the approval of others because I'm afraid if I'm judged, that, uh, then I won't get this particular job or, or, or I'm scared of what my parents will think. And so I feel judged if, if I don't do this uh, certain thing just right or, or if I don't have this perfectly Instagrammable life, then I'll get judged. If I don't preach a good enough sermon that somehow moves you and yet sounds intellectual and you know what I'm saying, then, then I'm going to get judged, right? It, it, it's everywhere. It's everywhere, Right? This idea of being exposed. We live in this world of fear and we need encouragement. Yeah, yeah. We need to have our courage stirred, right? It is that we live in a fear-filled world. It's full of judgment, whether it's final judgment uh, where everything's exposed or it's everyday life where we feel judged because of social norms that weren't met or cultural expectations that weren't met, professional norms that weren't met, or just self-recriminating voice of guilty consciousness, that the script that goes over and over again in our hearts. We need encouragement. We need encouragement. There's a reason this is so, so crucial, and it's actually for a good reason, because when, when you look at this, the, the, how the writer of Hebrews moves through this passage is fascinating. And in fact, in all of the chapters, it's fascinating, right? But, but, but notice what he does, especially in this verses. Notice in verse 19, he says, we enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus. And then in verse 22, it says, we draw near to God through the blood of Jesus, we enter the holy place, right? That's what it says. By the blood of Jesus, we draw near to God, what? Through the blood of Jesus. You guys know we need that more than anything else. That's what changes you. See, I, I'm selfish. And so when I get near the holiness of God, it gets me out of my selfishness, right? I'll be hard or impatient. But when I get near to the, to the love of God, it causes me to be patient and it melts my heart. Right? When you get near to God, it transforms you. And in the Old Testament, you couldn't do that. You couldn't get near to God. One person went up the mountain or one high priest would go into the Holy of Holies. You could not get back there. But now you have the writers of Hebrews saying, yes, you have access through Christ and through the blood. You have access. The writer of Hebrews is saying you can come boldly into the throne room of God. That you can come with this confidence. You see, you have access where at once maybe you didn't. But now you have access to the very presence of God. We can draw near. We can have the transforming presence. We have access. And so the question is, well, how do you access the access? Right? How do you access the access? And so this, look, look at how he moves here. Because in verse 19 to 22, he's talking about how we have access to the presence of God. But then immediately he turns around and says, therefore, let us, and he says what to do. He says, you have access, and because you have access, therefore, let us spur each other up to good works. Let us not forsake the assembling of to, to coming together. See, where, where do you have access? Where do you get access to the access? Did you catch it? Where do you get access to the access? In the community of believers. That's where you get it. Yeah. In the community of belief, through community. It's not simply enough to be like, well, I'm gonna go in my prayer closet and I'm not against, I'm not saying don't have prayer closets. And, and for those of you who are like, I'm new to Christianity, I don't even know what that means. It just means this private space, this private environment to where you get alone with God. You definitely need that. You have to have that. But you can't only have that. You can't only have, you can't be like, well, I don't need to show up to the you know, connect group or I don't need to go on a Sunday because guess what? It's just me and it's about me and Jesus. Well, and here's the crazy thing about that is if you were really doing that, he would tell you get to church. I mean, if you were really reading this in your prayer closet, you'd see, right? But we ain't going to say nothing about that. <laughs> right? It's through community. See, this is the reason C.S. Lewis points this out in Mere Christianity. He says this, get this quote, Christ works on all sorts of ways, but above all, he works on us through each other. 
We are carriers of Christ to each other. It's easy to think that the church has many purposes, education, building, missions, holding services, but the purpose of all those purposes is one. The church has no other purpose than to draw people into Christ and to make them like little Christs. If they're not doing that, then all the cathedrals, the missions, the sermons, even the teachings of the Bible are simply a waste of time. How does God's transforming presence that we have through Jesus Christ come into our lives through community. Through community. Now, now not just through community in the sense of like, okay, yeah, well, I, I was here Sunday morning, check. Yeah, but what are you doing when you're here? Oh, yeah. Right? Okay, yeah, I went to the meetup, check, but I just sat there and didn't talk to anybody and didn't let anybody talk to me. And I mean, you know what I'm saying? Like, what are you doing, right? What are you doing in those times? You have to practice what this says. You see? Not only do we need it, but we need to practice it. Number two, the practice of it. The practice of it. See, what we have to ask is this, is what what does this thing actually look like? And what does it mean to practice it, right? This one another thing. When it says do that one another, one another, you know? And there are four things I think that, that verse 24 and 25 talk about, and I won't have time to get into all of them today, but, but let me just bring up a couple things that if you notice that it says. But it says considering. Did you, did you notice that? When I had you say, say consider, right? It says to consider, right? It doesn't just say spur on, but it says consider it. What does it mean by that? It means when, when you come into this community, be intentional. Think about it. Intent, be intentional about what it means to connect to somebody. Don't just sit here and be like, well, if somebody approaches me or, well, I guess I'll just go hang out with the same people I hang out with every Sunday. No, be intentional. Yes. Y'all ain't hearing it today. You ain't liking what I'm saying. Be intentional, right? Ponder it, reflect on it. You know, how can, how, you know, to look at a friend and think about them. Think about, well, what is that person going through? How can I come alongside, like to, 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 to consider them. Are you being considerate? One of the biggest things that my wife loves in any relationship, whether it's a marriage or whether it's a friendship or whether it's a working relationship, is consideration. She's huge on it. She's huge on it. Did this person consider me and did I consider them? Consideration. There's an intentionality about what it is to help somebody else grow. Are you intentionally going into a space and be like, how can I help this other person that's in front of me, this group of people, this brother, this sister, you know, whatever it is, how can I intentionally help them grow into being who God has called them to be? Right? Can you sense that? Is there somebody doing that in your life and are you doing that in someone else's? Consider. What about spur? To spur, right? Spurring, you know, to spur one another. You know, in, in, in Greek, it's actually the word to irritate. <laughs> to irritate one another. And someone's like, yep, I know somebody that does that really well. We got that down, Pastor Roger. My, some, there's, there's certain people in my little connect group, there's certain people coming on Sunday morning, they got it down. They know how to irritate, Right? But it's a command. It's a command, you know? Some of you are like, I know some churches that are really good at this, right? But it's not that kind of irritation, right? It's a word that means to sharpen, like sharpen each other, right? To hold each other accountable, right? To, to, uh, the, and without this, you're not going to grow. You're not going to become a person of love and of good deeds without this. And neither are they. We will not be people of good deeds and of love. Instead, we'll be dead. Wow. I didn't mean for that to rhyme, but it did. <laughs> instead, instead, we'll be dead. Okay, anyway. Uh, <laughs> right? You're not going to grow. You're dead in the water. If you're the kind of person who's too touchy to let anybody come in and hold you accountable, right, about the more intimate things of your life, then spiritually speaking, and maybe in other ways, you're going to be dead. We all will. Do you really believe what the Bible says about your sin? It's one thing to say, I know I'm a sinner. That's what the Bible says, right? But do you practically know that the biggest flaw that I have and the biggest flaw that you have, 
right? The, the, the sins that, are, that, that will shipwreck us, by definition, are the ones we don't see. The ones we minimize. The ones we rationalize and justify. The ones that maybe we're blind to. By definition, our biggest sins are the ones that, are, that we are sort of self-deceived about. And the mark of a mature Christian community is the members know that and therefore they are accountable to each other. You go to another person and you have these friends, you say, look, you know, I'm a Christian and I'm supposed to live as a Christian. Therefore, the Bible says that I'm not supposed to have sex out of marriage, even though I want to. Or the Bible says, listen, uh, you know, we're supposed to be, uh, you know, uh, uh, spending our money and, get, uh, 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 you know, giving it away. And we're not supposed to be sending it our, uh, spending it all on ourselves. We're not supposed to be greedy with it. We're not supposed to be indulgent. We're, we should be giving that away. Right? Uh-huh. Are we spurring? The Bible says we should be forgiving. And maybe you're like, well, I hold grudges, you know? The Bible says we shouldn't have self-pity, but, but maybe I get really self-absorbed and I feel sorry for myself. And, and, what, and what this means is you can come to the person or you can come to the group and say, and when you see me being that way, hold me accountable. When you see me being that way, hold me accountable, right? Now listen, this is a lot easier to preach than it is to do, trust me. It's hard for somebody to come into my life and hold me accountable, but I know it's necessary. You have to think about it, you know, or, or are we maybe too modern? Maybe we're too modern of a culture, too modern of a society. And we say, well, well, that's way too personal. Only I have the right to decide what's wrong and right for me. Only I have the right to decide, you know, who I hang out with and, and, and how I talk and, and, and what I do. And it, you know what I'm saying? That, that's nobody's business but my own. And if that's the mentality that you have, get prepared for a very lonely existence. Very lonely existence. See, our culture is an enlightenment, individualistic culture. The sociologists call it expressive individualism. The highest value of self-determination says, I have the right to decide what's wrong or right for me. And you can either have that kind of individualistic freedom or you can have a loving community, but you can't have both. Are you willing to give your friends that warrant, that permission? Are they willing to give you that warrant and that permission? Are you spurring each other up to love and good works? And then finally, just because of time, I won't be able to go through all of it, but I do want to focus on the, the, the main word here for this morning is encouraging encouraging. It says we should also encourage one another. Now this is in some ways seems like probably a different word than spurring, right? Spur, y'all, y'all remember like the, the cowboy boots, right? With the, and they have those, those metal spurs on the back of them and you use them to, you know, kind of correct horses for, for, when, for when, you know, they're going the wrong way, you use them to correct them or what, right, right, right? But this is a little bit different, encouraging, encouraging. See, encourage means, is an English word to give courage. Encouraging is, it, it, it means to, to stir up courage in English, but in Greek, it, it, it's actually a little bit stronger. It, the Greek word there is perikaleo, perikaleo, right? And some of you might remember that for, you know, you Bible students of like, oh yeah, the Holy Spirit's called the paraclete, right? Somebody that comes along, perikaleo. And, and, and basically what I mean, para means to come alongside, and kaleo means to call. So, so what it means together is to empathetically and sympathetically put yourself in somebody else's shoes. Show them that you're really for them and that you support them in what they're trying to do. But for real. You know what I'm talking about? Like not, not churchy way of doing it. Y'all know what I'm talking about churchy way of doing it? You know, coming like, oh, Sister Watermelon, that's a nice dress you have on. Is that new? Oh, glory, God must be blessing you. And in reality, you're just envious. You know what I'm saying? You, you know what I'm talking about? Like, oh, brother, you, you went ahead and you got that new job. Oh, that's great. That's just wonderful. I'm just proud of you. Very proud of you. Yes, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, Jesus. Right? Like, you know what I'm talking about? You know? Not here to inspire, though. <laughs> Right? But no real encouragement. Like, you're really there. 
Jesus. We need an altar call right now, Lord. I was reading this article on running. I figured it's better than actually running. You know, if I can't, I'm not going to run. I'll just read about running, right? <laughs> so, you know, and, and you know, the, the reality, I, I'm reading this article. I'm, I'm, I'm listening to some of these facts. I'm like, yeah, I can, as a professional runner, I know that this is true. I validate this article and what I'm telling you, okay? <laughs> but this article was on the New York City Marathon, right? Now, let me just be honest for a minute. Running, what is it, 26 miles, right? is ridiculous. I mean, ridiculous, ridiculous. That's too far to run. That's almost too far to drive. Like when I go on ways and I want to look up something that I want to, you know, go pick up for dinner or whatever, right? And it says it's, you know, 15 miles. I'm like, ah, no, never mind. Right? Running 26 miles. Are you kidding me? And so as I was reading about this article and all they go through, I mean, I was getting tired. I felt my, I felt like I was in the marathon. I swear, my Apple Watch was like, you closed rings, like just reading this article, you know? And I just couldn't believe it. I just couldn't believe it. I remember that my friend invited me to watch him run at this certain event years ago. And I gotta be honest, at first I was a little bit like, uh, I don't know. I mean, really to go and just watch you run, that's not exciting to me. I mean, don't, you know, now maybe you, have, there's, some, there's some fans out here and you get a thrill at standing on the sideline and watching strangers run. I don't know. Uh, but for me, I was just like, ah. But then I realized he really wanted me there. And, 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 and to be honest, it wasn't that big of a commitment because you can only see like one portion of them running the race. So you get there and you wait, you wait, you wait. You finally see your friend. You're like, yeah, you got it. Let's go. Ah. Okay, let's go get a burger. I mean, it, you know what I'm saying? So it, it wasn't that big of a commitment. And so I was like, okay, I can do this. But I, can, but I guarantee you that when I watched him, it actually was very surprising. It was surprising to see how much endurance they have for this. And what's interesting about this article is when it started talking about the science behind the fans. The science behind the fans. See, the people that would come to watch those running and, and, that, and that the runner actually would get a different level of energy when it came to the parts of the marathon that fans would be at. When it came to those sections where fans would be at compared to the sections when they weren't, they noticed that there was a different level of energy that would happen during that time. And so because of that, organizers of these marathons started being strategic in where they placed the viewing locations on specific areas across the map, across the race. And they said, we're going to place them in the areas there where runners need it the most, where they need encouragement the most. See, this is what it is to encourage an authentic relationship of mutual accountability and of encouragement. And there's tons of stories out there showing you these kinds of relationships where they, where they, where they encourage each other, right? In fact, we're going to put a couple on the screen right now. Let's go to the first one, guys. Let's see. Who's this one? Batman and Robin. That's a great one, right? Who's next? Who else we got? There we go. Who is that? Frodo and Sam. Great encouragement. How about this one? Ready? Last one. Shrek and Donkey. <laughs> Amazing relationship, right? I love it. I love it. The, uh, there's a micro group that we have. I have a, of, of uh, five other guys. And, and uh, this week was an incredible encouragement where, you know, we were sending pictures of each uh, of the scripture that, that we were reading or, or a prayer or, or a thought. And it's just amazing to have that kind of encouragement. Now, when I say encourage, what I don't mean is flattery. Because flattery is unauthentic. I'm not, I'm not talking about going around giving compliments that you don't really mean. And many of us are flatterers, but we're not encouragers. And you're like, no, that's not true. No, no, watch, just, just hold on. Many of us are flatterers, but we're not encouragers. And here's why. Real encouragement is difficult. And it's counterintuitive. Because when we encourage someone else, it actually takes the spotlight off of us and puts it on the other person. In other words, every word of encouragement is an act of sacrifice and actively meeting the needs of somebody else over your own. 
Whether it's your marriage, whether it's your friendships, whether it's relationships with your boss or coworkers and colleagues, whether it's with other peers and other students, whatever the situation is, you have your own needs and you need validation and you need certain things. But when you go to encourage somebody else, when you go to enter into that person's life and really be there for them, then you're putting your needs second and their needs first. Do you see that? It means tending to someone else instead of tending to ourselves. And what ends up happening is we don't naturally do that because we're under this constant threat. We have sort of this black hole of a need for validation, which we call the human heart. And we're like junkies, junkies who are always looking for more, always worrying that we'll have that taken away, that validation taken. And we don't truly enter into someone else's world because here's why. It's impossible to enter into someone else's life without it also changing your own. without it also change your own. But that's what's needed. See? This is what you can't get when you just say, well, I'm, I'm a Christian, but I'm not gonna go to church. Oh, my friend, listen. You're missing out. Yeah. You're missing out. Because you can't do this on your own. And in fact, you can't even encourage on your own. Because you need the power to do it. You need the power to do it. The secret source of Christian community, of what Inspire is called to be, of what every Christian community is called to be, there's a secret source to that power, to, to, to the ability to encourage it. You see, verses 19 through 22 are all about what? Are all about what? Well, traditionally, it, it's all been all about like the assurance of salvation, right? But verse 19 says this, we have confidence you know what that word confidence means? It means speak freely. What it means to, in other words, you can speak without fear of reprisal. You can, you can almost just blurt it out. You don't have to be afraid of being rejected. The, the staff, we've been going through the Psalms and we've been reading some of these prayers and Psalms that David writes about. I mean, the audacity that he, that he talks to God is just crazy, right? And it's just confident, it's bold. And he just seems to blurt it out sometimes. And we're afraid to do that with certain people and under certain circumstances. And I get it. And I understand why. But you need to understand that in the presence of God, you can speak freely. In the presence of God, you can speak freely without fear of rejection, without fear of being turned away. If you want a better idea of what it means to be confident, right? Think of like, a, I don't know, an eight-year-old kid who wants to run to their mom and dad asking for something. Now, most of the time, when you're five, six, seven, eight, you're not stopping saying, okay, let me just think about how I'm gonna word this ask. I wanna make sure I use the right words. You know what I mean? Otherwise, I'll be, no, you just kind of come in and ask for it, right? You just come in and speak it. You just kind of come in and say it. And the writer of Hebrews has the audacity to say, if you believe in the blood of Jesus, if you ask the Father to accept you, not because of your good deeds, but because of what Jesus did on the cross, then you have, present tense, you have possession of that status. There's no condemnation for you. Do you know what that means? That means you can draw near. Do you know what that means? That means you are in the inner ring. C.S. Lewis gave an address years ago called The Inner Ring. And in that address, uh, he said something that's brilliant. He said that uh, one of the, the great ground motives, one of the great driving motives of the human heart is an unrecognized uh, and desire to be on the inner ring. We need to feel that we're on the inside of some sort of group that we admire or that we can't, that we can't live, otherwise we can't live with ourselves. So he began to talk about like things like uh, scholars, right? And even though they worked hard on their scholarship, it, it's pro it, it, they weren't actually after the scholarship, but rather their biggest concern was to get into this inner ring of academic elites. So people will think they're brilliant or they're smart, right? They want to be accepted by the academic elites. Or he sees people working hard to make money, but it's not really the money 
that they're after. It's that they want to have a certain lifestyle. They want to, they want to be in the inner circle of people that, that have this kind of house or this kind of car or that are able to do these kind of experiences or pay for these kind of vacations. They want to be in that inner circle, right? Some of y'all just, I want to be in the inner circle to pay my bills. Praise Jesus, right? They want to get into that club. Thank you for the two people that laughed at that. All right, praise God. Anyway, right? Or they can get in the co-op building, whatever it is. They want to be in the inner street. It's the same thing with street gangs, right? What are street gangs? They're kids desperate to know that they're in the inner ring. That's, I mean, you know what I mean? That's what's making life miserable because we feel like unless I'm on the inside of some ring of people that I really respect and like, then I don't know who I am and I'm insecure. What that means is this, is that you have this deep desire to be on the inside because you feel on the out. But see, what the assurance of salvation in verses 19 and 22 do is the basis for the wonderful community in verses 23 through 25. Verses 19 through 22, okay, is the basis for the wonderful community that we read about in verses 23 through 25. Why? Because when you know that by the blood of Jesus, you have been admitted to the ultimate inner ring, do you know that that ultimate inner ring is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? that you have been accepted into this divine three-but-one community, this inner ring, you see, this inner ring. You've been accepted by the only person who counts, (laughs) right? You can go in. You have confidence. You can blurt it out in that presence when you know that you're loved and you know that you're accepted, that destroys your need to be in the inner ring of, of, of all these other rings in society and all these other rings of culture. The desire to be in there and do whatever it takes, whatever I got to do, however hard I got to work, whatever shady deals I got to make at work, whatever corners I got to cut, whoever I got to front to and lie to and put a paint, a paint a face onto to get in that inner ring. When you realize that you are in the most inner ring that counts, then it destroys the need to be anywhere else. You see that? You can go in. If you don't know that you're saved by God's grace, if you don't know he loves you, then you will desperately try to find love in everywhere else. See, what are your relations really about? What are your relationships really about? Do you hang out with people for their sake or do you hang out with people because they make you feel good? Do you see that? See, most of the time, that's why we hang out with people, right? That's why you find people. In some ways, this is why you kind of pick and choose who you're going to hang out with. Because you're like, well, I kind of find that person boring. This other person, you know, we don't, we don't share interests, right? Maybe you even have a disdain for a certain person. Why? Because all of your relationships are about you until you know that you're in the inner ring. Then all your relationships can be about other people because you're not, rela- you're not relating to people so they make you feel good about yourself but you're encouraging others. You're sacrificially encouraging one of the, You're giving up your needs and your agenda for the person that, that, that's standing in front of you or talking to you or sitting next to you. You have that confidence because of what Jesus has done. See, and he loves you completely and unconditionally. And when you understand that, that transforms your life. As we get ready to end this part of the message, I just want to end with this. The question that might be ringing in your hearts is, well, how, I know that in theory. I know that in theory. I hear what you're saying, Pastor Roger, in theory. I hear what you're saying about the blood of Jesus Christ in theory. I hear what you're saying about the love of Jesus Christ in theory, but, but how do I get to know it in reality? How can I be sure that he's loved me like that, that I really am on the inside? I think of Jesus' word on the cross. See, what's the wage of sin? See, let let me just say this. Um, If you lie, if you cheat, if you're cruel, if you're selfish, the first result of the wages of sin, the first result of the wages of sin is always isolation and aloneness. Adam and Eve in the garden, Abraham, whatever it is, it always is. 
It's always isolation. In fact, when we talk about that, if you're not, if you have not accepted Christ, then you're going to be spiritually dead. What that means is you will be separated from him. You'll have a, you'll, you'll be separated relationally from God. It's separation because sin kills community. Sin disrupts relationships. When you lie, now you have to hide from the very people you lied from. You have to cover it up. If you're cruel, you alienate people. The wages of sin is aloneness. The wages of sin is to be forsaken. The wages of sin is to be horribly and terribly alone. And on the cross, and as the worship team gets ready and we get ready to worship and respond, on the cross when Jesus Christ said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That was the straw that broke his back. He had been betrayed by his friends. He had been rejected by his people, but now he was being forsaken by the father. Why? He got the aloneness that you and I deserved. Do you see that? He got what your sins and my sins deserve. He lost all community and was forsaken utterly. Utterly. He got it. He was forsaken. Why? So that way we would never be. So that way we would never be. Do you know what that means? Jesus was forsaken in your place. And because of that, God will never forsake you. Everything you deserve fell onto Jesus' heart. And now he will never, ever forsake you. And you can know that. And you can know that he loves you like that. And that will change your relationships. It will. It will change our relationships, how we relate to each other. Will you give me permission to just challenge you as you stand to your feet right now and we get ready to just respond to this message? Will you give me permission to just challenge your heart and challenge your mind a little bit? You've heard the saying, if you want to have a friend, you have to be a friend, right? You've heard that saying, if you want to have a friend, you have to be a friend. Let me just say this. If you want this type of community, you have to be this type of community. Right? You have to be it. If you want this type of, if you want the type of community where you can come and you can have freedom to be yourself and not worry about what it means to be rejected or what, you, you have the freedom to confess sins and you can hold somebody accountable and you can grow together and you guys can cry together and you can weep together. You can, you can cry over the things that hurt you or, or over the things that you fail on or you can celebrate and rejoice over the wins and over the different situations in your life that you're excited about. So if you want to have the kind of community where somebody is really there encouraging you, really on on your side, really for you, actually cheering you on, and you're like that with somebody else. Listen, here's the thing. If you want that kind of community, you have to be it. You have to be it. And the only way to be it is to understand who you are in Jesus, that you've been accepted by his blood and through his love. Can I challenge you to just make that a reality right now? To begin to ponder to begin to consider, to begin to think about what Jesus has done for you, who you are in him, and the implications that has on how you love one another. In Jesus' name, amen.